This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Buston. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss supporting public service personnel with occupational therapist, Dr. Heidi Cram. We'll learn how the rise of inflation is affecting mental health with Dr. Frank Elgar. We'll talk about how gut health affects your skin with beauty expert V Mystery. And lastly, we'll find out what the big deal is about acceptance with mindfulness expert Tracy Sograti. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot of healthy headlines. Researchers from the University of Queensland have discovered the active compound from an edible mushroom that boosts nerve growth and enhances memory. Lead researcher Professor Frederick Meunier says the team has identified new active compounds from lion mane's mushroom. Extracts from these so-called lion mane's mushrooms have been used in traditional medicine in Asian countries for centuries. But we wanted to scientifically determine their potential effect on brain cells, Professor Meunier said. Adding, preclinical testing found that lion's mane mushrooms had a significant impact on growth of brain cells and improving memory. Conversing with a friend just once during the day to catch up, joke around, or tell them you're thinking of them can increase your happiness and lower your stress level by day's end. These are among results of a new study co-authored by University of Kansas Professor of Communication Studies and friendship expert Jeffrey Hall. There's a lot of good research that says the number of interactions you have as well as the quality of the interactions are both associated with being less lonely, happier, and more connected persons, said Hall. This study found that once is enough, but more is better. Participants who choose to have more quality conversations have better days. Higher consumption of ultra-processed foods may be linked to an increased risk of developing and dying from cancer, an observational study suggests. Researchers from London's Imperial School of Public Health have produced the most comprehensive assessment to date of the association between ultra-processed foods and the risk of developing cancers. Ultra-processed foods are food items which have been heavily processed during their production, such as fizzy drinks, mass-produced packaged breads, many ready meals, and most breakfast cereals. Ultra-processed foods are often relatively cheap, convenient, and heavily marketed, often as healthy options. But these foods are generally higher in salt, fat, sugar, and contain artificial additives. It is now well documented they are linked with a range of poor health outcomes, including obesity, type 2 diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. I'll be joined by Dr. Heidi Cram in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. Are you a family member of a first responder or other public safety personnel? PSPNet Families is an online well-being hub that provides a wide range of information and skill-building strategies to help families navigate the demands of being on the job. 
PSPNet Families is a collaboration between PSPNet, the Wellbeing Innovation Lab, the Child Trauma Research Center at the University of Regina, the Families Matter Research Group at Queen's University, with funding from the Public Health Agency of Canada. For more information, visit www.pspnetfamilies.ca. Dr. Heidi Cram is the research lead for the Families Matter Research Group based at the School of Rehabilitation Therapy at Queen's University. Welcome to the show, Dr. Cram. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about public service personnel, referred to as PSP. What are public safety personnel known as PSP? Well, public safety personnel, or PSP for short, is a term that really includes a lot of different jobs. Most people recognize the term first responder, so public safety personnel, or PSP, is a bit more inclusive, so it includes first responders, so things that you think about like fire, police, ambulance, but we also recognize that there are lots of other jobs like border services, correctional officers, and those who are working in communication, emergency communication roles like dispatch. So those are also jobs that carry the same kinds of really occupational risks and requirements. So public safety personnel is the term that we like to use to recognize the variety of jobs that we're talking about. What is PSPNet Families and what does it do? Well, PSPNet Families has really grown out of a, a recognition that the families, these kinds of you know, risks and requirements that shape the lifestyle that goes along with being on the job in a public safety role, that this carries with it a lot of different challenges on the day-to-day. So PSP Net Family was kind of created to try to get ahead of some of those challenges that really are affecting folks. And we know that through things related to COVID and the kind of pandemic responses, the countermeasures, that families we were really concerned about, they would experience kind of more than their share of extra difficulty as the demands of public safety life really intensified. And how is PSPNet Families different from other resources out there? Well, with PSPNet Families, we're really focusing on the families themselves. So what we've seen over the past five to seven years is a lot of focus, and rightfully so, on the health and well-being of the public safety personnel themselves. So, you know, understanding their mental health issues, understanding the kinds of risks and exposures of uh, potentially psychologically traumatic exposures, what that means for them. And so what we see is the families are really serving alongside those folks in public safety personnel roles and that they are dealing with the challenges that are associated with that. And so families may be wanting to really support their public safety personnel and their own mental health and well-being, but they need to be able to take care of themselves and manage the challenges these jobs kind of impose on the daily life of families. And it's really for the families. Right. Families at the foreground. Yeah. So why are these families so different from non-PSP families? Like what sort of issues are they dealing with that other families aren't dealing with? Well, it's interesting. So our work really started with understanding military families. And so there's a couple of ways that military families are often defined in terms of these lifestyle demands. So we started with this kind of question of, are these lifestyle demands the same or different from public safety personnel families? Mm -hmm. And what we found through our efforts, through our research, was really that there's a lot of these variables that kind of come together in a bit of a day-to-day mashup. So if you think about 
public safety families have to really deal with a lot of logistical challenges. So people are coming in and out of work and home. And those challenges can be pretty abrupt. Like if you think about what a public safety personnel might be doing at in any given day, at any shift anywhere in Canada, they could be dealing with any form of difficult, challenging, complex, morally difficult, dangerous work. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, they're like, hey, honey, did you remember to pick up milk on your way home? Right. Like those are not just yeah. simple transition in and out. And they take a toll. And then, you know, the families need to understand, well, what does it mean to receive someone back from shift and how to support them and how to kind of continue along with the family life? Because there's this complex challenge for public safety families is that the families who are at home have to be completely self-sufficient without the public safety personnel when they're at work. Right. Because when they're gone, they are gone, right? They're not dropping by. They are at work and they are fully involved. But the families at home are fully involved in managing whatever's happening in the home. And so you have to be completely self-sufficient when they're not there. But when they are there, they have to have a meaningful, connected role. And that can change, you know, every other day, depending upon somebody's shift schedule. And those shift schedules change. So that's some of the logistics, some of the transition. There's obvious risk. So we've seen, especially for police families, we've seen just what kind of risk the families are living with and the kind of worry that they carry. And that also can make people feel kind of out of sync with their community. So they're not really sure how to be in the broader community because they're attached to a public safety community that that maybe doesn't feel welcoming. Hmm. So given all those challenges, why is it so important to understand and address these issues right now? Well, you know, we all rely on public safety personnel in Canada. They keep our communities safe and secure. And what we have found as families researchers is that there's this kind of bi-directional impact between the health and well-being of the public safety personnel and the families. So if you can target the health and well-being of the families, then that indirectly affects the health and well-being of the public safety personnel and vice versa. Because families exist as kind of this system. So if you change one element of the system, you change the system as a whole. So we want to be able to recognize that families themselves are important and they matter in maintaining our kind of operational security and health and well-being of the families who are there definitely serving alongside. Right. So when you say that the families are serving alongside public safety personnel, they're kind of at the front line too, right? Well, they're certainly affected by it and they are managing the home front for sure. So if you think that, you know, when people who are enacting these roles as public safety personnel, when they go to their jobs, they're fully involved. The people at home are fully involved in maintaining the integrity and stability of the home without that person. And so everybody's kind of fully involved. They're in it together. Yeah, that makes sense. So we've sort of, we've identified the problem. Let's talk about what PSPNet Families is doing to respond to these challenges that we've identified. So PSPNet Families really looks at trying to create awareness, try to give people language to understand their experiences, and is really focused more on the kind of upstream or prevention. Like, how do I get ahead of this? How do I manage these lifestyle dimensions? So when you come into PSPNet Families as a family member, you've got a couple of different choices about what resource pathway best suits your needs. If you're looking to get your head around, well, what does it mean to be on the job? Like, let's 
say you're a parent of someone who starts as a paramedic or a firefighter, and you're trying to get a handle on what is this going to mean for their kind of day-to-day life? What does it mean? How do I understand what they're going to kind of be coming home with in terms of, you know, what they saw that day or the shift schedule or what do you mean you can't come to grandma's 80th birthday because you've got to work? Can't you get that off? Why are you late for everything? Right. You know, all those kinds of things. It can give them kind of that information that helps them understand just the nature of the demand, what it means to be on the job. That's one resource pathway. Another resource pathway is really around, well, how do I, how do I learn skills and strategies to manage those demands? So the third is if the, the family member, and in, and in this case, it's a spousal well-being course, you know, so it's focused more on the spousal experience. If the spouse is having worry and upset and distress and frustration, and they need more of an internet cognitive behavioral therapy approach to help them understand how to recognize their thoughts and feelings, because these are not tools that are just generally available in the public, but also not contextually kind of resonant. So we really built this with a rich understanding of what these lives can look like. And so we want people to see themselves in this. Hopefully that answers. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and I think you may have reached some some listeners who are, I guess, technically PSPNet family members. And, and if so, and they want to access your resources, where would they start? What would they do? Well, they would come to our website and the website then kind of offers them a, a buffet of options. So you come into PSPNetFamilies.ca and you think, okay, like where am I at so that I can figure out where I need to start? If I come in and I'm feeling really frustrated and upset, maybe the spousal well-being places is is where you start. But we want you to be able to have the flexibility to move across these different resource pathways. So let's say that you didn't appreciate that you were having a lot of frustration and resentment at all of the times that you've kind of had to sacrifice occasions And, you know, you watch your friends and and other couples kind of going out and, you know, your home and your spouse is at work. Maybe that's where you start. But then, oh, maybe I need to understand some other things about work-family conflicts because conflicts are normal in families. And there are conflicts because everybody wants all of you, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. So there are natural tensions and conflicts that have to be kind of named and addressed. But people have to develop and practice the skills when kind of cooler heads prevail. These kinds of skills and strategies and information aren't really what people are looking for if they're in distress. This is not a distress resource. This is a, how can we support you in this lifestyle to manage these life challenges kind of resource. What's it been like for you to help develop PSPNet families? Well, it's been particularly interesting for me because I've run kind of the whole life course with my husband as a fire spouse. So right from, you know, applying to get on the job going all the way through the kind of career trajectory, you know, we had kids, kind of raising our kids up through and experiencing all those work-family conflicts. And for me, it's been interesting, and there's others on our team who are also PSP spouses. (laughs) Our experiences are kind of echoing some of the early feedback that that we're getting, where people are saying, wow, you know, this this is a shared experience. This isn't me struggling as an individual to manage these very difficult convergence, this mashup of factors, this is me struggling with some very real forces that are at play that are associated with the job. And so there's been kind of an affirmation for people, a validation 
And even in these focus groups that we're working through now, a lot of the spouses who have come into those groups are reflecting on this would have been so helpful kind of when I was starting on the job or, you know, when we had those decisions to make about whose career is going to take precedence over the other and when we were trying to balance childcare if we were having kids in the mix. So there's these life course elements that we're trying to capture as well because families are not static. Right. So when you meet somebody and you're 22 or 25 and you're like, oh, I totally get what this lifestyle is going to be like. I totally get it. But you don't really because you can't appreciate how much your own life will change. And if you have kids or you have parents with elder care, if your job changes, you go back to school, like take your pick. It's not static. So how do you evolve into this kind of being on the job alongside as they're also changing as they move through their career trajectory and they have, you know, different exposures to potentially traumatic events? Yeah, that makes sense. And and I understand you're still in the process of looking for more feedback. So what can our listeners do to help with that? Well, you are absolutely right. We really want to make sure that we are getting it right. Our early feedback's been really helpful, but we need more feedback. We need more input from users. You can go to pspnetsfamilies.ca and uh, you can get the link there to register and find out more. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I think these populations may not see that they're actually a population of interest. So as a family member, maybe we don't recognize yet that we are worthy and deserving of attention. But I think the message that we want to make sure that families are seen and heard and that their unique needs and experiences are responded to is very important. For more discussions and articles about health and wellness, be sure to visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss how the rise in inflation is affecting mental health on The Tonic. Medicinal mushrooms offer a multitude of health benefits, including immune support, improved energy, and stress reduction. Medicinal mushroom extracts from New Roots Herbal, hot water extracted, providing you validated potency so you get their full health benefits. Discover Reishi, Lion's Mane, or Resilience, a seven-mushroom blend. Find the complete selection of medicinal mushroom extracts from New Roots Herbal exclusively at quality health food stores. To learn more, visit newrootsherbal.com. To ensure the products are right for you, always read and follow the label. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Frank Elgar is an associate professor at McGill University, the Canada Research Chair in Social Inequity in Child Health, and a Canadian Institute of Health Research researcher. Dr. Elgar uses methods from experimental psychology and social epidemiology to investigate behavioral and economic determinants of health, focusing primarily on income inequality, social capital, and child health. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks. Thanks. So every single day I listen to the news or I read the newspaper or articles online, all I'm reading about is inflation. And besides the effect that it's having on the economy and and how the country's struggling to deal with it, 
it also has an impact on individuals, right? Oh, absolutely. I, well, you're right. Inflation and, and rising costs of everything has been in the news quite a lot, but it's a trend that's been there for quite a few years, rising cost of living, which has far outpaced uh, our wages for a few decades now. This past year, though, we've seen an acceleration of that trend and greater pressure to just afford, be able to afford the basic stuff to cover the bills, you know, make sure the kids are well fed and clothed, just covering rent and groceries and the basic stuff. It's all now applying a lot of pressure, especially for those families at the lower end of the income scale, where things were already pretty difficult. Now it's, it just seems to be intensifying more and more. Why is it that the people at the lower income levels are finding it more stressful? Because it, we naturally worry about, you know, it, it, it's not just being able to afford things, but we attach, our, our, I guess, a, a sense of self-worth. Our, our dignity is often tied to our social position. So when we're really struggling and we look around and it, it might seem that other families are having an easier go of things, I think that raises, you know, our, our anxiety. We get uneasy about our social position slipping or where we feel we're positioned in society. We're feeling more excluded. You know, when more of our income is diverted to just covering the basic material stuff and there's not much left over for social activities and, you know, participating in the community and all the rest, all the recreation is gone. It's hard to feel at ease with our social position, with our standard of living. So a lot of stress comes from that. And, you, and when, you know, you, you turn on stress, it's a really powerful social determinant of health. So how is health impacted by financial stress? Well, you know, financial stress is, you know, it gets our stress response going. We're unfortunately wired in such a way that our bodies will naturally divert a lot of energy away from, you know, whatever, having a healthy immune system, digestion, growth, and all the rest to just, you know, being able to respond physically to some emergency, some threat. Unfortunately for us humans, this is what we do in response to you know, psychosocial stress as, as well, like worrying about bills and, and mortgages and, and all the rest. And the, and the effect it has is linked to any stress-related um, health outcome, mental health, physical health. We see the effect of that stress uh, come out in, in terms of poor mental health and reduced well-being overall. What are some of the social impacts associated with, uh, you know, a sharp rise in the cost of living that we, we're just experiencing now? Well, there's no doubt that levels of poverty in, here in Canada are, are on the rise. But in addition to that, when the squeeze being put on lower income families is harder, we have another effect of widening economic gaps between rich and poor. Right. You know, and when you're struggling and in addition to that, you're continually having your, you know, your nose rubbed in your poverty, it adds on, it piles on the stress response. So with wider economic gaps, we have sociologists often call it reduced social capital. There's less interpersonal trust. There's less, you know, we're, we're not as affiliated or involved in our, in our communities. So at a social level, things start to fray and become quite uh, prickly, like we see that in higher levels of crime, interpersonal violence, uh, and all the rest. And on the health level, not only do we have reduced health overall, but we have growing health disparities between rich and poor. So it's both a, a material and a psychosocial thing. Both of those are compounding each other and making things especially difficult uh, for lower income families. And how are the children of these lower income families affected? For children, these same effects. You know, I've been doing research lately on uh, food security, which is 
you know, being able to afford the grocery bill every month, it's a powerful social determinant. It, I mean, it's, it's a sledgehammer when it comes to its impacts on well-being, uh, life satisfaction, mental health, depression, and all the rest. And for young people, even though they don't, uh, they, they may not understand, you know, salaries and inflation rates. They may not know, <laughs> you know, how much their families are, are earning, but they still sense the power of money. And they're also affected by their social position, you know, getting teased or, or feeling marginalized because, you know, they're, they, they can't bring lunch to school or their lunches aren't as fancy or, or whatever. They show some of the same effects as well. And you see this very reliable gradient in mental health across the socio socioeconomic spectrum from rich to poor. You see, you know, progressively better outcomes, better mental health and well-being as you go up the social ladder. So if all of this is true, are there solutions out there to this problem? There are. I, and I mean, the obvious one I think we would all think about first is we have to do something with poverty. And, you know, Canada is a very rich country. Poverty in the absolute sense of the word is, is relatively rare, fortunately. And I think what we have here in Canada is a distributional problem. It's relative poverty. It's income gaps. It's disparity in wealth and, and, and opportunity and good mental health between rich and poor. That's what's holding us back. And I, I think, you know, through the COVID pandemic, we got a glimpse of how government play, can play a positive role. We got a glimpse into how basic income can work. Right. And now there's a very important conversation going on about basic income, which was going on before. But I think our experience with CERB and, and, and other emergency measures through the pandemic is giving that conversation a, a lift. So with programs like the SERP, as we saw through the pandemic, we can see that helping lower-income families, helping them afford the, the basic things with, with food and, and, and rent and, and so on, can give them a lift. It gives us a floor for their own health and their well-being and sense of security. So, so we can see the answers. If you're convinced that our problem here in Canada is, is, a, is a distributional problem, you've already figured out how we're going to pay for it. And uh, I, I don't want to get all, all political, but we need a, a far greater investment and a, a more robust role of, by our governments in supporting lower income families in, in, in this country. That will go a long way in giving us better health, better outcomes, a longer, healthier life. Are you investigating the cost of the health issues that derive from this poverty gap? Because a value proposition, if I needed to be convinced that it was worthwhile to spend the money, like is the math there? Are we saving money by preventing health issues? Oh, gosh, the disparity in health and life expectancy. We have a t something like a 10 or 12 year disparity in life expectancy within this country. And it's, it's primarily down to economic factors. We have huge gaps in health outcomes between rich and poor. Some of that comes down to how our, we've chosen to design our, our health care system, but a lot of that comes down to, as I mentioned, the, the effect of poverty and lower socioeconomic position on the body's stress response. So you have more mental health problems, you have metabolic problems. All of these, you know, the precursors to poor health and disease are far more prevalent as you go down the social ladder. So yeah, it would pay off, especially if you invest in reducing child poverty, because the sooner you can intervene, the better the outcome overall. There are economic uh, studies on, on this. I'm, just, I'm not just hamming it up. Yes, the numbers too do make sense. 
And I just want to clarify, I, I want to make sure we're, we're not conflating those who are unable to work through disability or lack of education or opportunities versus the working poor. Like, are you distinguishing between those who are working but just simply falling behind versus somebody, uh, families who aren't working? And what portion of the population are we actually talking about? That's a great question because when you look at the relationship between socioeconomic position and health, the effect does run both ways. And you can imagine how like poor mental health, reduced well-being can get in the way and, and become an obstacle to participating in the workforce and, and so on. But the bulk of the evidence that I've seen suggests that the effect runs in the other direction primarily. It's, uh, it's reduced social position, all the psychosocial stress and, and, the, and the effects it has on our well-being, that seems to feed into poor health uh, outcomes later on. So Yes, it is true that once you get sort of trapped into falling out of the workforce and struggling with health issues, it becomes a bit of a vicious cycle for sure. Each will reinforce each other. But overall, for as a society, if we lifted things up at the bottom end, things do pay off broadly for everyone. And I think what we've seen in the past, in our recent history, is that a country like Canada can do better and can afford it. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're very welcome. Thank you. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the connection between your gut health and your skin on The Tonic. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait, go today. Are you a family member of a first responder or other public safety personnel? PSPNet Families is an online well-being hub that provides a wide range of information and skill-building strategies to help families navigate the demands of being on the job. PSPNet Families is a collaboration between PSPNet, the Wellbeing Innovation Lab, the Child Trauma Research Center at the University of Regina, the Families Matter Research Group at Queen's University, with funding from the Public Health Agency of Canada. For more information, visit www.pspnetfamilies.ca. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. V Mystery is a certified skin therapist and founder of Skin by V, a private facial studio in Toronto that specializes in awakening the skin through personalized and science-backed treatments. Skin by V also sells a selection of curated luxury skincare products, both online and in store. With more than 25 years of experience in the beauty industry, V has worked on thousands of faces and developed a highly tailored approach to the art of facials. Welcome back, V. How are you? I'm good, Jamie. How are you? Thank you for having me again. Doing really, really well. So, you know, we're health and wellness here. And we talk about the gut-brain axis, I wouldn't say all the time, but we've covered the gut-brain axis several times. But I'll tell you what we haven't covered, and Mm -hmm. that is the gut-skin axis. Is that a thing? Absolutely. Of course it is. You know, our gut is such a large organ, and so many people don't understand. That's kind of like 
the heart of like what's also going to happen on our skin so you know we hold some of our major organs you know in that sort of thoracic area but our gut what we're consuming and how we're eliminating things will kind of show itself on our face because our skin is actually an organ of elimination right through sweat absolutely yeah sweat and we're also putting products on there so that can also change the climate of what our skin's going to do And this ties into sort of more ancient theories of beauty with Ayurvedic practices as well, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So when we look at, I mean, I'm not a nutritionist, but when we look at the food that we consume, the food which has more of the anti-inflammatories, the warmer foods our body is able to digest, our gut is able to digest more optimally. Therefore, it's going to show in our skin. You know, what we're consuming, if it's fresher, if you've got that balanced diet, again, it's going to show in our skin. You know, my background is Indian. When I think back to my grandparents, I think both my grandmas were like, I don't know, in their like late 80s, early 90s when they passed on. But their skin was phenomenal. Like they didn't have the level of pigmentation. They didn't have that like, you know, fine lines and wrinkles. I I don't even remember either of my grandmas having acne or rosacea. And a lot of it comes from the food in terms of what they're consuming and being more regimented with, you know, home cooking and having that, that balanced diet. Okay, we'll discuss diet a little bit more in a moment, but is this gut-skin connection, is it a two-way street? Is what we put on our skin capable of impacting our, our gut health? Unfortunately, uh, well, fortunately, no, because what we put on our skin doesn't have the ability to penetrate to our gut, but what we put into our gut will show itself in our face. So when I talk about things like that, I always find sort of like the holiday seasons towards the end of the year, coming into the new year, you know, sometimes your temperature could be a little bit colder right now. We're looking for, you know, a little bit more of those comfort foods. So maybe, you know, during the holiday season, we drank a little bit too much. Yep. Maybe we, you know, didn't do too much on the hydration standpoint. Maybe we consumed more sweets. All of these things will impact our gut because it's not normally what we've been eating or drinking at the level that we've been eating and drinking. So what that will do is you may find that the skin feels a little bit more drier because alcohol tends to create a lot of dehydration in the skin. Sometimes, you know, we've consumed more sugary foods or foods which are a little bit more indulgent. If we're not used to that, pooping is a whole thing because people don't realize that you should be pooing at least one to two times daily so that you can eliminate those toxins. When you eliminate those toxins, it will make sure that the skin stays clear. So people who struggle with acne, I say around sort of like around the cheek area, that can typically refer to our gut. So if you're not passing those toxins correctly, you're feeling a little bit more backed up, you may notice that in those areas, it looks red, irritated, 
and sometimes you may have breakouts. You may also find if you've been drinking too much alcohol around the under eye area, you may find like it looks a little bit more sallow, like a little bit more hollow. You may even find that if you've been eating too much salty foods, in the morning you'll wake up and the face feels puffy, even around the under eyes, but just around the general contour of the face, you'll feel like it's puffy and a little bit more round. And it's because your face is holding onto that water from the salt, from the sodium. So these are the different ways that your gut will impact what we see on our face. Okay, so if the gut has all of those impacts on our skin, what is it that we can do to support our gut health in order to impact our skin? Yeah, so make sure you're eating a balanced diet. And again, I know during like the holiday season or during the colder months, sometimes we've kind of fall off the wagon a little bit. But, you know, we want to make sure that we're getting a balanced diet throughout your day. You know, we always say breakfast is the main meal of the day. You know, we're breaking our fast. It is really important. Try not to drink coffee on an empty stomach. It's way too acidic. So that, again, will start to either it'll make you poo too quickly so you're not holding on to any nutrients throughout your day. Alternatively, it may back you up again. I know we're talking heavy on pooing here, but it's like everything goes here right now. Making sure that we're drinking plenty of water throughout a day. Um, Again, people will, you know, sometimes focus on, you know, water over skincare or skincare over water. They both go hand in hand. Now, water will tend to go to all your other organs before it gets to your skin. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be drinking water. Hydration is key to keep the skin, you know, glowing. So that's that's number one. Monitor how much caffeine you're intaking. Sometimes, again, you know, if we're working from home, um, it's easy just to grab that big, you know, vente of like coffee and drink it throughout your day. It can be, again, very dehydrating internally, which, again, for our face, you're going to notice that the skin almost looks lackluster, like it looks dull and sallow and gray. So making sure that those things are really key. And then one of the big things that I you know, love to talk about to my clients is making sure you're consuming more warmer foods. Again, this goes back to something you started with, Jamie, which was like that whole Ayurvedic standpoint. The warmer the food, the easier your gut is able to digest the nutrients. So that's super important. So when we have a lot of gut inflammation, the colder the food, the inflammation is going to heighten. So try to eat more warmer foods. Even if you do want a salad, have that as a side. But make sure you, your main food is warmer. You're going to be able to break down those nutrients and optimize the benefits of them. Okay. And so you were talking about warm food in terms of temperature. But what about the spice factor of the foods in terms of what we consume? Well, you're talking to an Indian girl over yeah, here. Yeah, so. <laughs> I, know. I know. I know who I'm talking with. <laughs> so when we talk about spices, I'm like, yes, to the spice. Now, the only one thing to remember is if you are somebody that is struggling with rosacea, redness, flushing in the face, some people do find that spice can be a trigger for that. 
Um, So I would say when we're talking about warm, it's more from heat, like a temperature standpoint, rather than a spice level. But if you don't have the, you know, the inflammation, that rosacea, the sensitivity and the flushing, yeah, load up those spices. They're good. Like the turmeric, such an amazing anti-inflammatory, not just for our internal, but I think there was some research done that actually showcased that it actually helped with muscle memory too because of the anti-inflammatory in it. Yeah, I mean, like there's lots of anti-inflammatory foods and, you know, you're you're not espousing specific foods because you're not a nutritionist, but we're sort Correct. of we're, we're sort of speaking broadly. In your experience, like I sometimes I find the dairy can sort of trigger sort of uncomfortableness in the gut for some people and that in turn may manifest in the skin. Is is that your experience as well? Yeah, so sometimes right now I feel like there's, you know, for the past little while, there's been a little bit of, you know, if you have acne, don't eat dairy or, you know, cut out the sugars. I always say, you know, if you tried that for, you know, six to eight weeks and nothing changed in your acne, then dairy is not your trigger. So it's not a, you know, we can't use dairy as a blanket statement to say, cut out the dairy, it's going to resolve your acne. I think you need to really take a good look. When I also say that, I always try and say, when you are consuming dairy to see if that is your trigger for your acne and your congestion, make sure that dairy that you do consume is good quality. So the cheese is, you know, that beautiful cheese from the deli. And, you know, if you are having chocolate or some type of sweets, then you have a higher level of cocoa over sugar. So again, I'm not a nutritionist, but these are some of the things that over the 25 plus years, you know, as our climate has changed and as these different scenarios have come up within skin, you know, we've kind of come to a conclusion of it's not just blanket statements. If you cut this out, your skin will then, you know, respond in this way. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Jamie. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Tracy Sograti has an eclectic background in molecular biology, psychology, and nursing. 
She practices psychotherapy and yoga therapy and has over 20 years of experience in leading classes, workshops, and events. She believes that the tools of mindfulness pave the way for a deeply meaningful life at any stage. You can find her at sagradayoga.com, Sagrada Yoga on Facebook, or Tracy Sagrada on Instagram. And she's a columnist for The Tonic Magazine. Welcome back. How are you? Excellent. So what do we mean when we talk about acceptance? What does that mean? Yeah, so, I mean, it can mean many things, but the definition that I'm going to give all the listeners today is the definition that comes out of something called acceptance and commitment therapy. And it's it's a model that I'm heavily invested in because the research shows that it consistently works. And in this case, acceptance is really the willingness, so I want you to listen to that, people, <laughs> the willingness to experience the present moment just as it is. And if we want to do this, we have to kind of, you know, do a couple of things at once. We have to relax our resistance to whatever is coming up in the present moment. And that's often associated with our preferences or our expectations about a situation. And this can also be thought of as sort of making contact with the present moment. And sometimes I think of that old movie, E.T., you know, when the yep. fingers touch, right? Yeah. contact. So literally, I'll, uh, you know, if, if a client knows that image, it's like literally you have to make contact. You have to touch the present moment. And while you do that, you have to realize or recognize that you have a tendency when you don't want to make contact with the present moment to act defensively or to protect yourself. And so acceptance is about not acting out defensively and still acting effectively. Yeah. So it's pretty loaded. It is. So I've been sort of quasi-experimenting with presence or acceptance. Yeah. So it's never, I don't look backwards and I don't regret things that I've done. To me, that's never been my issue, but yeah. I'm always greatly concerned about the future. Like I'm yeah. always worried about what's next and what I have to do and whether it will work and whether it's doomed yeah. for failure because, you know, I'm a pessimistic person. So I'm, yeah. I'm always worried things aren't going to, and I'm very, very much trying to focus on the present. So this to is anchor. to anchor, yeah, to anchor, to anchor. Exactly. And you know, what you're talking about there, Jamie, is a tendency towards anxiety, mm-hmm. right? And yep. sometimes I call it anxious fantasy because you're kind of, it's like, a, it's a fantastical world in the future where everything is sort of more negatively, like the valence is like a little more negative. Yeah then how things might pan out. Yeah, and and just the practice, and it really is a practice and a process of just anchoring into the present moment can pull you out of that tendency. And when you do it enough, it becomes, becomes, it's like building a muscle, right? It becomes second nature to you. So what I've been trying to do, this is my little method, and it's, mm-hmm. I suppose it's built on narcissism, is, is in, a quiet, in a quiet moment, like when I'm walking my dog, I yeah. will try and name three things that I'm thankful for at that very moment. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, yeah. and that, I would even say the other thing that you're doing there is positive emotion priming. And there's great research for that, right? So noticing, savoring, and identifying the things that you're grateful for actually prime positive emotions in your psyche, and it actually improves your health. So I would say that that's awesome. And and even for your listeners, like if, we, if I want to riff off what you're doing there, noticing three things that you're grateful for, for some people, even that practice might seem like a big reach. 
And so, say you're walking your dog, you could even just notice three things in the environment, yep. right? And it might be, it might be the temperature of the air yeah. around your body. Yep. It might be noticing what your dog is sniffing, for example, because they sniff everything. And just, just so noticing those three things, it's literally that simple. But often what I notice with myself included is that you have to force yourself to do these simple little things until they become ingrained, right? Until they become second nature. Okay. So a moment ago, you talked about acceptance and commitment therapy. For, For somebody who doesn't know what that is, can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, this is a big question and I'm going to give you the simplest answer that I can. Okay. So acceptance and commitment therapy is depathologizing. And so what that means is that this scientist, Steve Hayes, and, you know, researchers all over the world have come together and they've found that no matter what you're diagnosed with, or even if you're not diagnosed with anything and you just tend towards anxiety, there are six processes that all humans do that will either lead to suffering or the opposite of those processes will lead to, you know, contentment, fulfillment, purpose. Right. I would say happiness, but I think sometimes happiness is kind of like, you know, life isn't always happy, but contentment and purpose. And so the six processes of inflexibility, right? So the things that cause us to suffer are when we are stuck in the past or the future. So exactly like you just said, experiential avoidance. Okay. So when we avoid feeling things, which is really what we're talking about today, cognitive fusion. So we have a thought in our head and we believe that our thoughts and our feelings are facts. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's called cognitive fusion. We fuse with them. The next one is attachment to a story about yourself that's very fixed, right? So seeing yourself from only one perspective. And the last two are inaction. So it could be inaction or impulsivity, right? So your behavior isn't guided by values and a lack of values clarity. So these are the the inflexible processes. And when you can develop psychological flexibility, which is acceptance, cognitive defusion, so perspective taking, making contact with the present moment, noticing yourself as an observer or coming up with or seeing different perspectives, taking committed action, even in the face of difficult circumstances, towards your values. And that means you have to know your values and you have to understand that values are like a, I guess, like a compass. So they're sort of dynamic. They change all the time and they're a guide for behavior. They're what allow you to make goals. Does that make sense? Yep. It's the underpinning. Um, Yeah, it's the underpinning. Exactly. So for those who are still sort of murky on this, can you sort of give a tangible example? You did in the article Mm, of -hmm. of the process. Like, what's an example of how this works? Yeah, going through. Yeah, of going through acceptance and the process of it. And maybe maybe I'll put it together. So one common example that I see is divorce. Right. And, and yep. you know, if you're not married, it could be the end of a relationship as well. So when someone's going through a divorce, there's all kinds of conflicting emotions. There's grief. Sometimes there's shame. And, and sometimes that shame makes sense because uh, when we're going through conflict with another person and we are in distress, we can behave in ways that when we think about it afterwards, we might feel really embarrassed about yep. just because we were in distress. And, and that makes sense for all of us. But Oftentimes, those feelings are so intense and so painful that we want to avoid feeling them. Okay, so there's the experiential avoidance because we believe that 
if we think about those things, if we feel those feelings, we believe, we become fused with the idea that we are a shameful person rather than recognizing that, okay, our behavior wasn't ideal, it wasn't guided by our values. And so in the avoidance of feeling the shame, the grief, the regret, which is all natural in a divorce, we instead unconsciously often try to protect ourselves from that. Now, how do we protect ourselves from feeling those really uncomfortable feelings? We generally will defend against the pain by attacking the other person, and it happens fast. Mm -hmm. So what the research now shows us is that emotions are the most important thing for people to get a handle on and to understand, and that they are super fast, right? Like it's like, it happens so fast that often we're at the end of a behavior before we look back and go, oh man, like why did I do that? Mm -hmm. So we will defend ourselves by attacking the other person and that behavior will then recreate the whole cycle of interaction that probably triggered the breakup. And the other person is doing the same thing. Often, right, right, yeah, and so in this way, we're we're sort of blocked by acting effectively, and I guess you know the other piece of your question was, well, okay, well, what's the process that what, that moves us into psychological flexibility if we if we look at the same example, yep. And in this case, right, the first step is to make contact with the present moment like we talked about. And that means, you know, if I'm going through a divorce, well, it is going to be painful. And I'm going to make contact with the present moment by recognizing that emotions are in the body, right? So you tune into your body in the present moment and you notice the sensation. You know, your gut could be twisted. Your chest could be heavy. You yep. might be gripping your teeth together, right? All of those things are happening and you just feel them. And then you start to notice the meaning you're making out of them. So it might be telling yourself this is unbearable, right? Well, if you believe that that's true, of course you're going to freak out, right? But what if you just observe, oh, I'm feeling so much grief and my mind is telling me that it's unbearable. And yet from another perspective, I'm still here. And I can accept that I'm telling myself it's unbearable because I don't want to feel it. That makes sense. And then the final step is that we have to choose to act in accordance to our values while staying present with the pain. So in the question of divorce, say, for example, there's children involved. You know, our value might be to be a strong and present parent. Well, in order to do that, I have to have a workable relationship with my ex-partner. Yep. So I need to be able to walk towards or move towards this person and actually resolve conflict quite peaceably in order to do that and still feel my feelings. That last part, that sounds like the hardest part, right? It's so hard, Jamie. It's so hard. And, you know, I I guess the other thing that I'll say is it, it is such a triumph. When people can practice, do this practice and actually do that, they walk away feeling so good about themselves because uh, you're just more resilient, you know, when you can when you can start to do that. And it starts with little things. The process starts with little things. Makes total sense. Thank you so much for coming on the show and explaining that. Yeah, it was my absolute pleasure. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Heidi Cram, Dr. Frank Elgar, V Mystery, Tracy Sograti, and thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. 
For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic Magazine. The January-February issue is still available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Bussin wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.